Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. I believe that we are at the beginning of a great awakening. A great awakening is different than a revival. A revival is when a person, church, or Christian institution is lacking spiritual vitality to the point of being spiritually dead or in the throes of spiritual death, and God restores spiritual vitality. A great awakening, on the other hand, is a visitation of God on a city, county, region, or country that affects the people spiritually, causing them to turn to God, which changes the societal values and social interaction. In our history as a country, we have experienced four great awakenings. The Great Awakening, 1730 to 1740, Jonathan Edwards preaches his message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He preaches it purposefully in monotone, without voice inflection, lest the emotion in his voice would move the people instead of the Holy Spirit. And as he is preaching in Northampton, people are grabbing the pews for fear they will fall into hell. And a Great Awakening sweeps the area. There's another great awakening in 1810 to 1840. Charles Finney was it at the end of that. Peter Cartwright in the middle of it. So it's, it involves many people. It's broader than one place and one person. There's a great awakening in 1880 through 1910. Kind of the end of it was the Azusa Street Revival that started in 1906, went to 1909. But there, was, there were revivals that were happening, and Mariah Woodworth Edder was seeing massive crowds come, and, and God was moving during that season. Then there was a great awakening in 1960 to 1980, and there's that movie on Chuck Smith and the Jesus people. It's really a, a tremendous reminder of the power of God to transform a society, and the charismatic renewal was part of that as people came into an understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and, and it, it swept through denominations across the country, and people were saved. All of that then gives us a bit of a backdrop as we come to Acts chapter 19 because we're going to see what is arguably one of the greatest spiritual awakenings in the entire history of the church. It's a spiritual awakening at Ephesus, the second largest city in the Roman Empire of its time, over a quarter of a million people there, and the seat of, of Asia Minor, Roman government in that area, as revival or awakening spread out of Ephesus throughout Asia Minor, as churches were started, as cities were changed, as people were saved. Fact in Acts Chapter 19 and verse 10, it says the gospel spread all over Asia. Here's a map. It gives you a little idea. So this is Paul's missionary tour on the third tour. He comes to Ephesus right here. You'll notice there are churches in yellow. These are the seven churches of Revelation. Many people believe these churches are all started out of the revival that happens in Ephesus. Ephesus is a... Is not only a commercial center, it is an occultic center. It is known for its magic. 
It is known for its sorcery. There is, in writings of that time, uh, mentions of the Ephesian letters, which are spells that people would have as a necklace. They would be put in a little cylinder or a locket, and they would carry them with them, believing that, that the spell would protect them from evil spirits. And all of that changes as an awakening is worked through the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the city of Ephesus. This is a fascinating passage because it shows us three realities that are present when God sends an awakening. Number one, awakening and the Word of God. Ultimately, if people are going to be awakened to the true God, they have to know who He is. And the Word of God is what tells us who God is. In fact, without the Word of God, we come up with all kinds of ideas about God that are untrue. That's why Paul gave them the Word. Let's look at it, Acts 19, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So in the synagogue, unlike churches today where, where a pastor or a guest speaker could pick any topic they wanted, in the synagogue, there was a regimented order to move the people in the synagogue through the Old Testament through the course of the year. So there'd be a reading from the law, the first five books of the Bible. There'd be a reading from the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the other prophets. There'd be a reading from the Psalms, all designed to help people be able to know the Word of God. And then there would be a rabbi who would teach on the reading for that day. Paul does this for three months, and whatever he's doing, he's taking whatever the reading is for that day. And because all of Scripture points to Jesus, he is starting with that reading and telling them about the kingdom of God and about the Lord Jesus. We read this in verse 9, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Why is it called the way? And, I, and let me just say, there's, there's a cult that used to be more prominent called the Way International. It is a cult. They get their name from this verse. But Christianity was initially known as the way because the followers of Jesus kept saying, this is the way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So Christianity was called the way. And what people were doing is people were cursing the way. We read this in verse 9. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him, and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So this is the first time a church ever meets in a school, and they've been doing it ever since, right? So they're meeting in this lecture hall. The, the Western text of the Greek New Testament adds the fact that Paul taught them from the fifth hour to the tenth hour. So Paul is teaching from 11 in the morning to four in the afternoon, and he's doing it for two years. You say, why is he doing it at that particular time? Because in that part of the world, it's very hot during midday. There's no, there is no air conditioning. So Tyrannus, who owns the hall, he, with the rest of Ephesus, is taking a siesta. They're avoiding the, the heat of the day. In fact, scholars tell us there were more people on the streets of Ephesus at one in the morning than there were at one in the afternoon. 
So Paul is there and he's teaching people and talking to them about the gospel. Really, you could in some sense call it the siesta seminary. As people are coming in and they're learning from Paul. And so Paul is working. He's doing leather work. He stops, teaches, if you can imagine, for five hours, then begins to go back to do more leather work and then teaches at night. We read later in the chapter, he's, or in the next chapter, he's teaching at, at 11 and, and midnight. So he's constantly teaching them the word of God, training people to go throughout Asia. Night and day teaching. You know why the, the church at Ephesus was one of the greatest churches in the first century? Because they were a people who understood the word of God. This is why the preaching of the word is always so absolutely important. This is why we go verse by verse through the word. You don't need me to hear me talk continually on hot topics or my opinion on things. You need the word of God because the word of God strengthens us. The word of God grows us and it increases as as it's taught. Revival or awakening starts with the Word of God. Number two, awakening and the supernatural. Now, this is a very interesting part of Acts chapter 19. And as we're talking about the supernatural, we're talking about two areas. We're talking, first of all, about miracles, primarily of healing. And we're talking about exorcisms, casting out demons. Jesus, and we won't take time to look at it, when he sends people out, he says, heal the sick, cast out demons. That's a part of a gospel ministry. As necessary or more so today than it was back then. Wherever there is an awakening, you will find the supernatural, both as a precursor to it and as it breaks out, you'll see it continue. That's why I tell you, we're in the beginning of a great awakening. Listen, there's a stirring of the Spirit. You talk to pastors across the country. There is a stirring of the Spirit of God. God is getting ready to shake this country. There's going to be a move of God that is going to sweep. What's happening here is not about here. What's happening here is about what God wants to do. As God is moving, Acts 19.10. This is really fascinating. This went on for two years, Paul teaching, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. How's everybody hearing? Because he's discipling these people, sending them out, and they're preaching, and they're starting churches, and the church at Colossae, the, we have the book to the Colossians, the church at Laodicea, the church at Sardis, the church, all these churches that are a part of the churches in Revelation. Now watch this. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. The Greek, the ESV is truer to the Greek, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Interesting. Extraordinary miracles. All week long I've been thinking about that. Extraordinary miracles. I don't know about you, but any miracle is pretty extraordinary, isn't it? So I'm kind of thinking, I'm thinking, okay, extraordinary miracles. What are we talking about? Because already, think of this in Acts, they've seen paralytics healed. They've seen the dead raised. They've seen some amazing, they've seen devils cast out. In the 
revival in Argentina. So back in the 1980s and 1990s, there was a massive move of God in Argentina. People traveled from all over the world to go and to see it. But as a part of a move of God and awakening in the country, it actually took the country from having less than 1% of the population being evangelical Christians to 15% of the population becoming evangelical. It was a massive move of God. But a part of that was miracles. There were so many miracles that they began to categorize the miracles as usual and unusual, as ordinary and extraordinary. Here's what they came up with. Ordinary miracles might include the healing of an ulcer, breast cancers, hernias, headaches, migraines. Extraordinary miracles would be organs that had been surgically removed suddenly were back in the body. So a person had a kidney removed, now had a had brand new kidney. A person had the lung removed, now had a brand new lung. Ordinary miracles were when somebody had a tooth missing and they capped it. They, they said this, ordinary miracles, if you had up to three teeth that instantly were put back in miraculously, that was ordinary. If you got a whole set of teeth, that was extraordinary. <laughs> One of their extraordinary miracles were bald men getting a whole head of hair. I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm asking you to do this. Take your picture bald so we have a before and after, okay? You think I'm kidding. Ordinary miracles is healing a knee. Extraordinary miracle is growing a leg. I'm just saying, extraordinary miracles, Luke makes the differentiation. In Argentina, that's what they did to try to categorize and catalog the miracles. Goes on and says this, so interesting. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him, that's Paul, were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. So Paul's doing his, his leather work. It's hot there. There's no air conditioning. He's sweating. So his sweat rags, he's tossing them to the side, and people are like snagging them, and they're like, I'm taking this. I'm going to put it on somebody, and they're, they're finding out instantly people are getting healed. He's done working, going over to the lecture hall. He puts his apron down, and somebody's like, when he leaves, that's gone. And so they're taking it, and they're putting it on people. I mean, this is what's happening. Or they're telling Paul about a need, and Paul's saying, I can't go. Here, take this, lay it on them. You say, which is it? Probably the latter, but maybe both. You say, does that work? Well, it does if you have the right person doing it. Here's my concern. I think people who've never read the Bible or people who are new to this, they're like, oh yeah, wow, that's cool. People who've been in it a while are like, yeah, that's like the TV evangelist who sent me $10, I send you the cloth, and you're a bit jaded in your view of it. You say, does it work? Let me give you some illustrations. This is from Mariah Woodworth Edder. I sent an anointed handkerchief to my mother, uh, Mrs. J.J. Mason St. Clair. She fell off a porch 15 years ago, so she's telling this story she'd gotten from somebody. 
This woman had fallen off a porch 15 years ago. A washing machine fell on her, which caused her to be an invalid ever since as her limbs withered away. As soon as the kerchief touched her, she was immediately healed and is praising God for it all. This kerchief was then sent to Mrs. P.C. Phillips in Chicago, who had been crippled with rheumatism. She also was instantly healed and is praising God. The days of miracles are certainly not over. That's happening in the late 1800s in that great awakening period that we talked about. People having a handkerchief anointed and being healed. The days of miracles are not over. Smith Wigglesworth tells this in his book, a woman came to me in the city of Liverpool and said, my husband is a drunkard and every night comes into the home under the influence of alcohol. Won't you join me in prayer for him? I asked the woman, do you have a handkerchief? She took out a handkerchief and I prayed for it and told her to lay it on the pillow of the drunken man. The next morning, the man got up and going to the first saloon that he had to pass on his way to work, ordered some beer. He tasted it and said to the bartender, you put poison in this beer. He could not drink it and went to the next saloon and ordered some more beer. He tasted of it and said, you put some poison in this beer. I believe you folks have plotted to poison me. He went to another saloon and the same thing happened as in the two previous saloons. That evening, he went to another saloon to get some beer, and again, he thought the bartender was trying to poison him. He made such a disturbance that he was thrown out. He went to his home, told his wife what had happened to him. His wife said, can't you see the hand of the Lord in this, that he is making you dislike the stuff that has been your ruin? This word brought conviction to the man's heart, and he came to the meeting and got saved. Let me give you one more, because I just want you to know this happens. 1993 at Deeper Life Bible Church in Nigeria, one of the pastors of one of the campuses felt led to invite all those who had sick, sick people at home to hold up their handkerchiefs, and he prayed a blessing of power over them. They were to return home and place the handkerchief on a sick person and pray for healing in Jesus' name. A Muslim chief of a nearby village was visiting that night. It was the first Christian service he had ever attended. He held up his handkerchief, and when he returned to his village, he found that a nine-year-old girl had died, and they were getting ready to bury her. He walked over to the corpse, placed the handkerchief on her body, and she was instantly raised from the dead. He... And the entire village were converted. It's the power of God. When God is moving. Listen, I hope you understand. 200 testimonies of healing in one month is a lot. But it's the beginning. 200 testimonies is a lot. But we haven't begun to see what God's going to do. And I hope you are in a place where you're saying, oh God, this is the hand of God. You are visiting this church in a very, very unusual way. Acts 19, it gets even more interesting. Whoever said the Bible's boring has not read it. I'm just <laughs> telling you. So some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So here they are. They're 
they're trying to do this. As believers, you and I have authority over demons. Let me just say this. We're going to see an example of people who ought not to have been doing it, doing it. And that's a dangerous thing. It's a spiritually dangerous thing to cast out demons if you're not where you need to be in your walk with the Lord. At the same time, if you're good with the Lord, you don't have to worry. Are we square on that? Randy Clark in his book that we've recommended to you and have a few copies left writes this, is it, casting out demons, dangerous? Yes. Is it forbidden? No. But it definitely is not for the average Christian. It should be the domain of those invited by the Holy Spirit who are living in holiness and whose faith for the battle is supplied by the Holy Spirit. Watch what happens, Acts 19, verse 14. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So they're using the name in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, trying to cast out demons. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. If that's the worst thing that happened to them, they were fortunate. Because when an evil spirit is cast out, it is looking for a place to rest. Jesus mentions this in Matthew's gospel, again in Luke's gospel, Luke 11 and verse 24, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. So it's looking for a place to go. That's why you want to be careful about engaging in that if you're not right with the Lord. Again, not to scare anybody as believers walking, walking close to the Lord. You don't have to worry about it. You have authority. Number three, awakening and repentance. Acts 19, 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Here's what happens in an awakening. And this is true of every awakening, you have, you have historic records of this. When God begins to move, and he's moving right now, there's going to be a moment God's going to come down. You say, what does that mean? He is, the weight of his presence is going to come down in a way you've never known it before. If you have, you will know exactly what it is. And what happens is, he descends into a place where both religious and irreligious people are seized with fear. You say, well, I didn't think we have to be afraid of God. Jesus said, I'll tell you whom you should fear. Fear him who has the power to, after you have died, cast your soul into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He knew the Father well, and he said, be afraid now, here's the thing. You say, what do you, well, I, I didn't think we have to be afraid of God. Better have a holy respect and reverence and awe for God. For the believer, that's what it is. It's like, God, you are God, and you are here. You know, when Isaiah, the prophet, when he's in the presence of the Lord, what happens to him, Isaiah 6? He cries out, I'm damned! That's what woe means. I'm eternally ruined. 
Because I've seen the Lord, his presence. And instantly, his own sinfulness, I, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people. My mouth is my problem. And what does, the, what does God do? He sends a seraphim to go and take a coal off the altar and burns his lips, purifies his speech. I'm just saying, when you're in the presence of the Lord and he descends, I don't care who you are. You could say, I don't, I don't give a rip. I don't care. And that'll never happen to me. Oh, wow. I'd like to meet you now and have a camera follow you for when it happens because it will happen. You know, I'm, I'm just telling you when it, when it happens to the religious, you know what it is, but you fall to your knees. I mean, listen, Peter is in the boat with Jesus when he gets the miraculous catch. Instantly, he's terrified. Because more fearful than God outside your boat is God in your boat. And he, he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. In that moment, you're aware of who you are in such a way that it, it overwhelms you. And yet at the same time, and this is the, the paradox, you're, you're overwhelmed on the one hand by your own unworthiness and overcome on the other hand by his great love. When that happens, you will never forget it. To the irreligious, grabbing the pews, lest they fall into hell. I mean, this is a very interesting thing. You say, well, does that really happen? Let me give you some accounts. Mariah Woodworth Eder says this. This is Hartford City, Indiana. Displays of the power of God continued to increase until we closed the meetings, which lasted about five weeks. The power of the Lord, like the wind, swept all over the city, up one street, down another, sweeping through the places of business, the workshops, saloons, and dives, arresting centers of all classes. The scriptures were fulfilled, the wicked flee when no man pursueth. The fear of God fell on the city. The police said they never saw such a change, that they had nothing to do. They said they made no arrests and that the power of God seemed to preserve the city. A spirit of love rested all over the city. There was no fighting, swearing in the streets. The people moved softly and there seemed to be a spirit of love and kindness among all classes as if they felt they were in the very presence of God. That's, a, that's an example of what we're talking about. This is a great awakening. That almost seems unbelievable until you see it. Ben Franklin writes of Philadelphia at the time of George Whitfield's preaching. I'm going to read you from his autobiography. He wrote this in his diary. In 1739, and by the way, Ben Franklin was an irreligious man. In 1739, arrived among us from England, the Reverend Mr. Whitfield, who had made himself remarkable there as an itinerant preacher. He was at first permitted to preach in some of our churches, but the clergy, taking a dislike to him, soon refused him their pulpits, and he was obliged to preach in the fields. Historians tell us that the crowds numbered between five and 20,000 in the fields. That he would be out there preaching as people went to work, and people were falling, crying out to God in the fields as he spoke. It was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners 
behavior of our inhabitants. He's writing about Philadelphia. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if the whole world were growing religious. So that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in the different families of every street. That's what an awakening does. It creates a profound change in the populace. It brings people to a place of repentance and righteous living. It's an encounter with God that radically changes the core of society. Acts 19, verse 18. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. So one of the things that happens when there's an awakening is people jettison sin. I mean, sin goes out the door. And anything that causes sin, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Let me read you this from a commentator so you understand the scrolls. The scrolls that were burned may have contained the famous Ephesian letters. We would know them as fetishes. A fetish is anything that you carry that's had a spell cast over it for the purpose of protecting you. Very common in other parts of the world, becoming, sadly to say, more common in the U.S. Ephesian letters with their words of power for warding off demons and the sort of material preserved in the magical papyri, such as the incantations, hymns, and prayers. So what they would do is they would put it in a little cylinder and then they would wear it around their neck or it would be in a locket or they would wear it on other parts of their body. So here's what happens. These are made, by and large, out of silver. And when people get saved, they decide... This has got to go. Let me just say this. There are people listening today, and you love the Lord, but you've got things in your house that need to go. We've talked about that in messages on the unseen realm. We've referenced it in the series on deliverance. You would do well to get rid of some things. There are some things that are not worth hanging on to, honestly. So they burn everything, and give me the verse back, if you don't mind, the value, and the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. Drachma is a day's wage, so if you figure uh, minimum wage at 15 bucks an hour, 40-hour work week, you're talking $6 million. This is going to so infuriate the, the trade guild of silversmiths because what they're doing is they're making the cylinders, they're making the containers, and all of a sudden they're watching people. 50,000 people are saying, don't need that anymore. And so if you have somebody as a head of a household that has it, and you're, you're talking their kids as well, you're talking, you're talking tens of thousands of people, over 50,000, maybe as many as 150,000 Ephesian people saying, I'm done with this. And they're angry, and you're going to read in the rest of the chapter, they move into the amphitheater, 25,000, and for three hours shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, because now all of a sudden they realize that there's a new sheriff in town, and his name is Jesus. And he's changing life in Ephesus. It's one of the greatest revivals in the history of the church, and certainly the greatest one in the Bible. Verse 20. 
And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Listen, if what ha is happening in this church stays in this church, it will die in this church. What we're experiencing is designed to go outside. It's designed for every single person in here to have an encounter with God that changes your life. And I believe that's happening regularly. There are a lot of you that when this started, you're like, I don't know whether this is real. Others were saying, I think it's a complete fraud. I think it's just fake like a lot of, a lot of things. And now what's happened is you've met people, you know people who you're like, I knew them and they're healed. It's real. And then some of you who thought it was a fraud, God in his grace have healed you. And you're like, I can't, it's not, it's real, it's real. But what's happening is God is raising your faith. God is bringing everybody's faith up to a level you believe now. And we haven't begun to see the extraordinary miracles we're going to see. Over a hundred years ago, there were prophecies. A guy named Charles Parham gave one in New York at the same time, the same week as William Seymour, the leader of Azusa, gave one at Azusa. Mariah Woodworth Edward gave one at the Stone Church in Chicago. It's called the 100-Year Prophecy. All of them saying that in a little over 100 years, there would be a move of God that would sweep the country that would not be located in one place, but would happen in many places. And there would be miracles greater than Azusa Street. And it would be part of an end-time awakening that would, would draw people back to God. You know, I, I pray that, that that's what we're experiencing because, you know, I, I know something is happening and I know there's a stirring across the country. You just, you, I'm, I'm, around, I'm talking to enough pastors, especially now with what's happening here, that you, you can tell the Spirit of God is stirring in a way in my ministry. I've never seen it nationally. You say, what should we do? Two things. Number one, get ready spiritually fast this week. Draw close to God. The Bible says, draw close to God and he'll draw close to you. That's what this fasting is about. What a tragedy to be in a place and just spectate. Oh, that's a good miracle. Ooh, that's a, that probably can be an unusual miracle. And that's all you do. And you never changed. Wouldn't it be better if the spirit of God so impacted you that the miracles you were categorizing were not the ones you're watching someone else do, but the one God is using you to do. You say, can that really happen? You don't know me. You don't, you don't know, John, where I'm, what I'm like. Listen, I'm just saying, you draw close to God. God will draw close to, close to you. And these are unusual times. You have to, we have to get ready. Why are we fasting? We have to get ready to welcome him in a new way to do new things. That's what this is. And we're not just getting ready for ourselves. We're getting ready for all of the people who are going to be coming with life-threatening situations, people for whom surgery is not an option. The doctors, and I thank God for, if you're a medical professional, I thank God for you. God brings healing through you. But there's sometimes that human doctors do all they can and it's not enough. And that's when there's a divine physician. 
And I'm just saying there are people coming who need him. And you and I are owning the responsibility to say, by fasting and prayer, we're gonna create the environment where God can work in power in a way that will heal people of fatal conditions. Remember the prophecy. We'll set people free and we're gonna experience an increase in the work of God in this place. That's why we fast. And that's why we need to walk in holiness. I just want to ask you this question. Are you living in a way where you're ready for God to use you? He, he wants to use you. That's, settle that in your heart. Some of you are like, I just don't think you do. Listen, that's, that's not of God. And it's either from you or it's the enemy influencing you. You need, to, you need to get rid of that thinking and say, God, if you can use anyone, you can use me. You can use me. He can use you. Number two, pray for our city. Pray for our region. When I say city, I, you know, we could easily say, mean by that Joplin, we could mean Nixa, Ozark, we could mean Willard, we could mean Stratford, we could mean Lebanon, we could mean Republic, we could mean, you know, you name the city, Webb City, Carthage, Neosho. When I say the city, pray for your city. Pray for the region. I've been asking God to send a great awakening across Southwest Missouri. But I've just been convicted my vision's way too small because it's less than his heart. His heart for the people of Missouri. His heart is for the U.S., a country that is moved the gospel around the world but now is rotting from within his heart's for the world pray for a mighty move of God 